Welcome to the Hamiltonian Podcast, where we seek to explore various perspectives from top experts, journalists, practitioners, politicians, and academics on the top foreign policy issues facing America today. I'm Gabe Scheinman, the Executive Director of the Alexander Hamilton Society. Welcome, everybody. My name is Gabe Scheinman. I'm the Executive Director of the Alexander Hamilton Society. It's great to have so many people with us today. For those who may not be familiar with us, AHS is a nonpartisan, not-for-profit national organization that seeks to identify, educate, and launch young men and women into the foreign policy and national security fields imbued with the Hamiltonian perspective of strong and principled American leadership in global affairs. We operate first and foremost on college campuses across the country, where our student-led chapters host some of the nation's most eminent scholars and practitioners, and our over 50 chapters host over nearly 200 events a year on campuses, and our over 1,000 alumni are serving across the national security and foreign policy space here in Washington. If you're interested in learning more or get involved in our work, you can visit alexanderhamiltonsociety.org, and we'd love to connect with you. We do a lot of book talks. I love reading a lot of books. This one is particularly special because it really feels like it comes from one of our own. And so it's a great privilege to host my friend, longtime partner, former member of our board of directors here at AHS, Dave McCormick. Dave is a proven business executive, combat veteran, and public servant. He served for many years as the chief executive officer of Bridgewater Associates, one of the world's largest investment management firms, before last year pursuing a U.S. Senate seat in his home state of Pennsylvania in 2022, where he is right now at his home in Pittsburgh. Prior to Bridgewater, he was the U.S. Treasury Undersecretary for International Affairs and held senior posts on the National Security Council and the Department of Commerce. Before that, he was the CEO and then president of two publicly traded software companies. He's also a graduate of the United States Military Academy, a former Army officer and veteran of the first called four. He even holds a Ph.D. from Princeton School of Public and International Affairs and previously served on the Defense Policy Board. You all would know all that if you've actually read the book, because the book that I have an advanced copy of here, Superpower and Peril, A Battle Plan to Renew America, it's available for pre-sale today on Amazon and it comes out next week. And the book is really a great combination of the biography I just read and I think Dave's astute analysis for what we need to do to change the country. So Dave, welcome and congratulations on the book. Gabe, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's really an honor to be here with the Alexander Hamilton Society, which is one of the you know great hopes, I think, for high quality, balanced thinking about the future of America and a great vehicle for doing that on college campuses. And you you forgot to mention the dissertation advisor at Princeton for that dissertation was our own Aaron Friedberg, who was one of the founders of Alexander Hamilton Society and a board member. So uh, it's great to be with you. Thank you. Oh, fantastic. There's so much we can talk about in the book. So I figured we'd dive right in. So the book, as I read it, I don't know if it's meant to come across this way, is part autobiography, part diagnosis of what's going on in the country, and obviously part prescription. And I would add that the tone throughout it is actually quite optimistic. You are optimistic because of both who we are as a country, and we'll get into that, but also because we've been here before. We've been in the ruts, we've been in decline, yet we've managed to reverse that curve with a lot of vigor. You also, in the book, talk about how on the campaign trail last year, you met with a lot of Pennsylvanians that are angry, angry about flat wages and rising prices, angry about elites who seem to not care, or let alone worse, maybe not even understand them, angry about some of the humiliations the United States has suffered on the world stage. So let me just start with the bigger question, which is, why are you so optimistic about America when it seems like, I hate to say it, so much of America seems actually quite angry for the same reasons? Yeah. Well, first of all, Gabe, it's obvious you read the book. (laughs) Thank you for that. And, uh, you know, the book covers you show is it's sort of stark superpower in peril. And friends have read it, said to me, boy, it seems so dark. And then you read the book and the book is optimistic, just as you say. And it's optimistic just for the reasons you've said. Our history 
is one of unique exceptionalism in terms of America's contribution to the world, the American experiment, what it's brought for individual freedom, liberty, the well-being of not only Americans, but people throughout the world. But we also have a tradition of getting to the edge of crisis or catastrophe and pulling ourselves back, getting to the edge and pulling ourselves back. And I lived through one of those. I lived through one of those in the late 70s. It felt a lot like today. There's that great Mark Twain quote about history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And we had stagflation at the time. The economy was struggling. We had gas lines that went around the block. There were odd days and even days. I remember sitting with my dad as a 14-year-old getting gas in our huge Ford station wagon, and you could fill the tank, but only on opposite days. And there was Desert One, where we lost eight soldiers, sailors, and airmen trying to rescue the Iranian hostages, a lot like Afghanistan today. And you know, the majority of Americans in 1979 thought that the country was headed in the wrong direction. And in 1983, I was a cadet at West Point, a plebe, walking on those beautiful walkways across the campus, and America was back. It was morning in America. The economy was on fire. Our military was back. America's place in the world was reassured, and the Cold War ended six years later. And it feels a lot like that now. 80% of Americans feel like the country's headed in the wrong direction. We have economic problems, $31 trillion of debt, a fentanyl crisis, a border crisis. We're being challenged on the world stage. And so, you know, decline is not inevitable, but neither is renewal. And it depends on what we do. And this book was my attempt. And I started a couple of years ago, long before I decided to run for the Senate. This book was my attempt to say, here's what we should do. We need to educate our people. We need to confront China and we need to secure America. And here's how to do that. And I hope with the book that I can play a constructive role in having the conversation around the direction of America go in the right direction. And I know both from our many conversations over the year, but also what you write in the book, that you really do believe that America is an exceptional nation, you know, from the nature of its founding to the wisdom of our political system to how it's conducted itself compared to others. And you spend some time in the book about why you think this is the case. But you also acknowledge that that is no longer a universally held principle among Americans. I mean, you quote, I think, President Obama in the book about a quote he made, then his candidate is, oh, Americans are exceptional the same way that Greeks think they're exceptional. There are quotes about President Trump, who also seems to play that same game. And, and now even, I'd say, even President Biden, seeing embrace some of the more revisionist takes on American history, have questioned this concept. So how would you define American exceptionalism today? How important do you think it is to, how important do you think believing it is to this ethos of American renewal? And do you think it's in trouble? Well, I think it's a great question because I think by any analytic measure, America is exceptional in the history of society in terms of, first of all, an enterprise, an experiment that's dedicated specifically to liberty, the liberty of the individual and the government at the service of the individual through representative democracy that's designed to have individual liberty supreme, a capitalist system that has brought more economic well-being, addressed poverty both at home and abroad more than any other country in the world that is designed specifically for the advancement and preservation of individual rights. And so by any measure in terms of the goodness that's been brought to the world by America's founding and America's presence over the last 300 years, it's indisputably been a force for good in the world. And I think that that's one of the confounding things about this moment, because our schools today, among other things, are teaching a version of American history where that's being called into question. And there's confusion around the dark chapters of our history, which are real, that have been a continuous process of addressing and improvement. The American experiment continues to address its shortcomings and get better over time. 
but the shortcomings of America have come to define America as opposed to be just what they are, the shortcomings of America in the pursuit of a more perfect union. And so that's the challenge with our current moment, because if you don't believe America is exceptional, the American exceptionalism that we know, the American dream we've lived is worth preserving, then it calls into question how much energy, time, focus Americans want to put into preserving that thing that is so very special. And so I talk about that in the book. And I talk about the fact that COVID was an interesting moment, I think for all of us, because we learned a lot. We learned about our vulnerabilities, supply chains, and so forth. We can talk about that in a minute. But what parents learned was what was being taught in their schools. And parents, because their kids were participating in Zoom calls from home, got to see up close and personal the history that was being taught, the question of sexualization in our elementary schools. So there's a whole series of topics that parents saw teachers introducing to their children in a way that was inconsistent with their beliefs or their beliefs about the role teachers should play. And so it just brought to focus, I think, the shortcomings in our schools. We can see the statistics. We're losing competitiveness and STEM and all these other things. But that was a very in-your-face example for many parents of the shortcomings in our school. And I devote a lot of the book, a lot of one of the chapters to what we should do to bring our education system back on track. You have a quote, I think it's in chapter two, but I'll find the page number that essentially you say, quote, American strength makes it possible for us to practice and preserve our exceptionalism. I would actually argue the converse is true as well, which is American exceptionalism is actually what allows us to actually become powerful. What in your mind are the sources of American power? I mean, we will focus in a minute in terms of the second half of the book, which is your prescription for what do we need to do to renew it. But some of that is, I think, is focused on the moment we are today, which not necessarily true, let's say, 100 years ago. So in your mind, what are the key elements, the key factors that you think help frame or undergird the importance of American power and be able to do all these things? Well, there's a number of different dimensions, some spiritual, which we just talked about. I'll come back to that in a minute. But really, the impetus for the book And you you and I talked about it a number of times over the years, and I wrote with my AHS alumnus and great friend and colleague, James Cunningham, wrote an article, I don't know, four or five years ago in War on the Rocks on the convergence of economics, technology, and national security. And of course, throughout our history, those have always been very interdependent. But the point I was making that when I served in the government in 2005, 6, 7, 8, you you could begin to see the issues of technological development, 5G and satellites and space and so forth, were converging in a way that those were the core of economic success, productivity enhancement, economic vitality, but they were also at the core of national security. And if I fast forward from the time that I was Undersecretary for Export Administration, the Commerce Department, which is that area is getting a lot of focus these days, or the Deputy National Security Advisor, that convergence over the last 17 years has been remarkable, where when we talk about America's economic well-being, we can point to 20 technologies that are going to have huge implications for our productivity, our economic dynamism, and so forth. Those 20 technologies, for the most part, will also be at the core of our military strength. And those will also, both of those two things, our economic vitality and our national security, our national defense capabilities, will also be at the core of our geopolitical power. And so, that convergence is complete. And it's unique in this moment. And it requires, which we can talk about in a minute, a completely different mindset of how we think about economic policy for the most part and national security policy. For the most part during my time, I don't want to overstate this, but they were two separate but related schools of policy. Now they're very much interdependent in a way that they haven't been in the past. 
China has understood that. China is pursuing a strategy which reflects that. And we are not. Our policies, our institutions, our leadership has not caught up. And this book is meant to try to bring focus to that critical new reality. And that's where I want to go to next. So when a lot of people talk about American decline, both in the tangible terms, but in the probably overstated spiritual terms, they often point to a smaller and weakened military. They point to our federal deficits and exploding debt. They'll point to some of our demographic issues or decline of religiosity and family and community. I mean, we've all heard these before, and there's truth, obviously, to all this. But in your book, you make the case that the three areas that we need to focus on are talent, technology, and data, that these are the three critical pillars for what a plan is to reverse American decline. So why these three? Why do you call these three the defining contests? And I'm sure you don't dispute the earlier things I said, and there are a place in the book where you talk about that the debt is an unsustainable and horrific problem. And I know how you feel about American military strength, but why focus on these three? Well, you know, one of the things you'll learn as a CEO, which I've been a CEO a couple of times, is, you know, there's lots of things that need to be fixed but you have to focus on the things that are going to have the biggest impact and are most necessary to success. And in my mind, that geopolitical competition, the China challenge, confronted with our own decline, dysfunction, disillusionment at home, poses a real problem because you know, it's self-reinforcing. The disillusionment, the disenfranchisement, the belief that the American dream is no longer possible, the stagnation in our economy leads to become a self-fulfilling prophecy at the same time that that weakens our standing abroad, as you just made the reference. Those are two sides of the same coin. And so what you have to do is essentially put in place a set of policies. They're going to bring back the productive dynamism of our economy because that growth creates opportunity. That allows the American dream to be possible. That focus on educating people brings back opportunity to all Americans, including minorities, including blue-collar Americans that feel, for the most part, I met on the campaign trail, many of them who feel like they've been left out over the last 20 years. That technology leadership creates new industries, new capability, new dynamism that's critical to our economic growth and well-being, but also to our national security. And the data piece of this is really critical because core to innovation in today's world is data. Data is a huge strategic asset, and we don't have a data strategy for dealing with it. And big tech, as it exists today, in many ways is compromising our national security and economic vitality in ways that I try to describe, particularly the social media dimension. So those three pieces are very interdependent, and the confluence of them, I think, is critical, those three areas of policy, to innovation. And innovation's critical to productivity, growth, and productivity enhancement, which makes the economy of America at the core of our economic strength, our national security strength. And so that's why I picked those three areas. The other thing I say in the book, though, and one without the other is not much of a solution at all. We need great policies, which I try to articulate, but we also need great leadership. And so then I talk about the kind of leadership that we need to confront China, the kind of leadership we need to really reform our institutions. There's a section there called the wages of decay. And what I'm referring to there is the fact that our institutions have been hijacked by a progressive ideology called wokeness, which is essentially compromising basic principles of merit, capital allocation, individual liberty and responsibility, driven by an ideology that ultimately undermines what's made some of those institutions and what's made America so unique. And then I finally talk about transformational leadership, which there's these moments in American history where the threat and the opportunity has been existential. And those moments where we've been successful have been determined by transformational leadership that fills the void. And so it's both a policy book and a leadership book. Those two things combined, I think, can put America back on the path to renewal. 
Great. So let's dive into a little bit some of those policy choices. So first of the category you call talent, which I think you say is really about people at the end of the day. And I think in the way you break it up in the book, it kind of falls into two policy categories. So one is an education category, both K through 12, higher education, and also what we might call continuing or professional education, and then questions of immigration. So first on the education piece. So you talk passionately about expanding school choice, a commitment to free expression, something that we at the Hamilton Society work on a lot, the need to reinvest in a civics education across the board and why that's critical to building that community. You talk about the breakdown, as you just said, or the devaluing of merit versus, let's say, equity, as the word kind of used. And you've got one stat in there that really astounded me that said in the 21st century since 2000, the number of teachers in K through 12 public schools grew by 7.7%, the same as number of students, but the number of administrators grew by 75%, just way out of whack with enrollment and teachers. So what in your mind is the best way to think about our education? We don't have a national public education system, right? I yep. mean, it's the things that you've seen by state, like where are the places that you've seen that you think this state has got it right, or this is the right way forward? And where are places that we need to focus on more, especially in that K through 12 space? Well, you know, I think it comes back to some basic principles, which is what I tried to do in that chapter is articulate an ecosystem that's failing, radically failing. And I don't think you can incrementally make adjustments that's going to fix that ecosystem problem. You have an incentive challenge, you have a structural problem. And what I tried to make there is in a much more visceral way, the case for why school choice is such an important part of reforming our entire education system. Because until we put the power in the hands of the parents and the kids. Think of a, each kid is, has a backpack on, and in that backpack's the amount of public dollars that we allocate to the education of each kid. It's remarkable how much money we're spending and how little we're getting back for that investment. And so to the extent that those parents and those children have choice, that's going to address a lot of these fundamental problems. It's going to take a while. It's going to be highly disruptive. There's no doubt about it. But ultimately, when parents have an opportunity to opt in, to places that are teaching a version of American history that's consistent with America they know and love, or talking about the role of parents, talking about science, math, science, and engineering, that choice is the key. So you see now a whole series of governors from Governor Huckabee in Arkansas to uh, Governor DeSantis in Florida taking really advanced, aggressive steps to try to bring our education system back in check, but it's going to be a problem. And what's happened is there's certain things that are undeniable. And the thing that's undeniable is that we're losing the battle globally in terms of math, science, engineering. America's secondary school system ranks just at the bottom of the top 20 in the most exceptional nation in the country. Can you believe it? The question we were just talking about American civics and understanding of American history and America's role in the world has deteriorated dramatically over the last decade. So what this is, is really a very visceral case for choice. And I'll say a final point, which is our school system, our public school system in particular, is most disadvantageous to the poorest among us, minority students, blue-collar families who don't have choices. Those who can opt out have maximum choices for great opportunities. And so if you want to have the American dream, where anybody can start where they start and end with all that America has to offer, you have to fix this as a basic fundamental building block of American exceptionalism. And that's why I devote so much time to it. And I think on the education part, as you mentioned, you mentioned a couple of states and former Governor Ducey of Arizona, I think was one of the first in the nation to really kind of push those school choice or savings about the state in Arizona. So I think there's like widespread agreement there. Let me turn to immigration where I think there's a bit more. Can I, can I make one more point on that? Because you asked yeah. about the skill. I only gave you half the answer. Sorry, I went off. 
I went off on a bit of a tangent, but it's important. But the other part of this, and I saw this on the campaign trail, it made it so much more obvious. But we all grew up thinking a college education was the path to the American dream, the path to opportunity, the path to you know, a good middle-class existence in life. And increasingly, that's not necessarily the case. And what we lack, and I saw this on the campaign trail on many of the companies I met, one of the biggest challenges with our semiconductor industry coming back here is we don't have skilled workers. So we need to have a doubling down as a country on skilled training where people can get the technical skills they need, whether it's advanced manufacturing or whether it's in technical fields, to be able to support the kind of economy that I was describing earlier with technology driving the future. And you don't have to have a four-year education to do that. There are many ways that we can, with Pell Grants and veterans benefits and all sorts of things, help arm our workforce for opportunities of the next century. And we've devoted far too little time on that. There's an ideology, there's a state of mind where a college education is the only path. And I think we should question that. And we should ask ourselves, what is it we're trying to create? And I think it's economic dynamism. I think it's economic well-being at the national level, but also at the individual level. Skill training can make a big dent in that challenge. Well, that's great. I think it's an even better transition to the question I was going to ask afterwards, which is I think on the education issues, there's a lot of support, I think, in the Republican Party and certainly amongst its leaders for exactly what you're talking about. The next part of that conversation is questions of immigration. There's obviously a big debate in the Republican Party. And in the book, you come out very strongly in favor of strong borders, must restore American sovereignty in the border, must deal with the cartels, must deal with China's role in this, all true, but that we really do need a focus on what I think you call high-skilled immigration, partially for the reasons you suggest. I was actually struck throughout the book when you're talking about tales from the campaign about how many businesses in Pennsylvania say they actually want to hire, they don't have the labor. Whereas traditionally, when we think about this politically, it's the opposite, whereas people who have skills yeah. can't find the jobs. So right. why do you think the high-skilled immigration is such a critical factor here to renewing America? And how do you make that case politically? Because I do think it is a little fraught. Yeah. Well, that's why I tried to hit it head on the way I did. I think one of the things that became more apparent to me during the campaign was the true centrality of the crisis at the border. I didn't fully understand that until I went to the border to visit. And I saw the implications of open borders. I saw the damage the cartel was doing. And then I came back to Pennsylvania and I saw that with the fentanyl crisis where last year, Gabe, we saw 5,000 5, Pennsylvanians die from fentanyl abuse. So this is I mean, almost- you, in, the the, book you talk, in the book, you talk about how you go to rallies and ask people to raise could, their hand. You've been touched could, by could, it. Everybody unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. Like it was just, you know, it's a major issue. And so, and by the way, in terms of human tragedy, the open borders now are, and I think it's a contrast from the last administration from President Trump to President Biden is horribly inhumane because what's happening at the borders now is exploitation on a scale that's unprecedented in terms of how the cartels exploit women and children as they're coming across. So it's really horrible. And you have to start with that because it's truly a crisis of sovereignty and human suffering that's without precedent. At the same time, let's not let that get in the way of having a very thoughtful discussion around what legal immigration should look like. And the point that I was trying to make, and ironically, the reforms that I recommend were many of the reforms that President Trump had been contemplating in the final year of his administration, but were never put in place. But we need to have a skilled immigration system that works. And there's many countries that have evolved theirs. Canada, as an example, has a merit-based skilled immigration system where they're welcoming skilled immigrants, particularly in those industries and areas where there's needs. And so you have to reconcile 
that as an economy, we need to give American workers the opportunity, the skills to be able to compete and have opportunity. And we also need to recognize that skilled immigrants can be a great supplement to our workforce and have historically been a big driver of innovation and success in our economy that's assisted all Americans. And those things are not inconsistent at all. They're all consistent with America's economic dynamism, well-being, and the well-being of the folks I met on the campaign trail in Pennsylvania. So I try to make that case as clearly as I can. You have another stat that really struck me that in the last full pre-COVID year in 2019, of the 1 million green cards that the United States gave out, only 54,000 were to skilled workers. And so if my math is right, I think that's 5% or a shade over 5%, which is crazy. I mean, even if you thought that, even if you support our current immigration system, my guess is you wouldn't have thought that that it was that low. So how do you, what are the mechanisms for reversing that? Like I said, there's the political part, which is we got to be able to actually have a secure border first. Okay. But how do you, is it you bring those businesses that, you know, you kind of met with on the campaign trail and say, these guys support it, they need this stuff. Is it combined with the point you were making right before about continuing education or reskilling the workforce in different ways? Like, how do you make the political case for that last part once you have done the border part? Well, I think, first of all, that embracing the border challenge and the significance of that for the American economy, the challenges creating and saying you're going to deal with that in a forthright way that actually stops a huge problem is critical. The other irony is that what I'm recommending on skilled immigration is truly putting America's interests first. And so a merit-based skilled immigration process that supplements the kind of training for skilled workers that I'm suggesting doesn't come at the expense of American citizens. It's advantageous to American citizens. So I think the key is to make that case. I think that's what the Trump administration was trying to do at the end but ultimately it got caught up in lots of other things with COVID and so forth. So I think that's the way you have to make the case that this is all for the benefit of America and for the American worker. And I think that's a strong case to be made, but it has to be made. So let's turn to technology and data. I think the other two kind of components of this. And so you're a free market guy. You you were president of a company that at some point was called free markets, right? I mean, it can't be more than that. I know that in general, or at the theoretical level, the concept of industrial policy makes a lot of people kind of queasy about how that plays out when we're seeing some of that now. What do you feel that you've learned or how do you approach this question of balancing the goodness, part of what makes America exceptional, which is this free market system that we were liberated in that way. That's what allows for innovation, which is exactly what you're talking about here in the book. But that there are some ways that we need to either remediate some of the downsides or there are certain areas that are so critical that just because we play by the rules, that doesn't mean we can allow others not to. We need to figure that. So how do you balance these things and how has that changed for you over time? Yeah, it's something I really try to devote a good bit of time to thinking about because you have two extremes that are sort of presented as the possibilities. You have a hardcore industrial policy where the government's involved in picking winners and losers, or you have a China fusion model where China owns their state-owned enterprises that are supporting China's interests, or you have no involvement whatsoever of the government in the evolution of our technology capabilities in the country. Those are sort of the extremes that are presented. And I just start with the practical reality, which is we are in a geopolitical competition for the future of the world, really. The future of the model, the future of economic leadership, the future of of national security leadership. And we're losing the battle, at least on one dimension, which is if you believe, as I described, that these technologies are critical to the future is gaining momentum and we're not. 
2017, there was a report that the USTR did that identified the 20 key technologies that are sort of at this intersection of economic well-being and national security, artificial intelligence, quantum science, 5G, robotics, satellites, and so forth. And at that time, it was about 10 for 10. China had leadership in 10 of those, and America had leadership in 10 of those. And by the way, one of the characteristics of these, they're a little bit zero-sum. So think about the 5G technology. If China would have been able to have that 5G technology pervasively deployed across the world with Huawei, it made it very hard from a geopolitical standpoint for the U.S. ever to get a foothold in the telecom infrastructure again. Recently, just last week, you may have seen this, there was an Australian think tank that released a study of the 44 key technologies at this intersection, and it labeled China is in the lead for 37 of those 44, 37. So let's start with, if you believe my thesis, which is America's well-being, America's leadership in the world, America's superpower is dependent of having leadership at the intersection of technology, economy, and national security. We are losing that. And the question is why? And my retort in the book is China has a plan. What's our plan? And I think the answer is we don't have a plan. And so what the book tries to lay out is a plan. And the plan's comprehensive for renewal. So that's, it's like going to the gym. It's muscle building and talent. It's muscle building and data. But the one unique part of it is the technology. And what I describe is there's two pieces to this. One is if you look at basic R&D in America today, it's about a half of what it was in the early 1950s, where we really had this technological revolution. And the government plays a unique role in supporting basic R&D. So we need to increase basic R&D. That's consistently been at the core of America's innovation agenda. But the second thing we need to do is try to bring market forces focused on the areas that are most critical to America's future. And we need to do that in a way where the government isn't heavy-handed. The government's not putting its finger in the scale. It's not politicized. And so what I essentially recommend in the book is the notion that American policymakers need to be very clear on the areas that are most crucial to America's security, and then they need to encourage private capital into those areas through tax incentives. We recommend this notion of American Innovation Fund, where we essentially would co-invest, the government would co-invest with private sector investors that would be investing in those sectors like artificial intelligence where the government might take a first loss or cap its return. But private sector forces would pick who and where the money would go. You don't want the government in the place of selecting individual companies. It's disastrous. And you don't want the government, and this is what sadly we're just seeing with the CHIPS Act, you don't want the government trying to take its role in imposing certain standards or childcare or certain hiring practices. You want the private sector to have the freedom to do what's necessary to be successful in those areas. And so that's what I propose in the chapter. And I have a question there, which is, what would Milton Friedman say? And I'm not sure what Milton Friedman would say exactly, but I would reverse the question to Milton Friedman and those who say the government should play no role and say, do you agree this is existential? And if so, do you agree we're losing the war here? And what can we do to bring the best of American dynamism, the best of capital allocation based on free market dynamics, partnered with the recognition that there's certain things that matter more than others, and it's zero sum. And if we don't win those battles, we're going to lose the broader war for uh, American supremacy. Diagnose it for me a little further. Why hasn't the market worked? Why hasn't private capital gone to these industries or these places like you would think the market would work? Is it because it's not 
optimized towards national security and these larger aims that we have as a country? Is it because the Chinese have so subsidized or altered the playing field that it is impossible for them to compete without some sort of U.S.? Well, there's two, two things for sure. There's two things for sure. There's probably others. One is what you say, which is the capital, the fusion model in China has heavily subsidized certain industries that have huge national security implications. Semiconductors is the most obvious. Could you have imagined, Gabe? I didn't. I mean, I'm embarrassed to say when COVID happened and we saw the degree to which our pharmaceutical supply chains were dependent on China, or it became obvious to us that 90% of the semiconductors in the world, particularly the high-end ones, were dependent on Taiwan, which is 90 miles away from mainland China. Could anyone have thought that the incremental set of decisions that got us there were right decisions? No. They minuced it, but those were decisions that were made based on purely free market terms because China was subsidizing. So the cost of capital to do so in the United States was too high for semiconductors, or it was much less costly to manufacture in China or derivative countries. So we can't have those areas of such national significance, national security significance, have free market principles drive them solely. At the same time, we can't have the government getting in the middle of selecting how and why. So yes, China subsidies is one, and that's a very important one. Technical skills is another that plays a big role. And then finally, the labyrinth that is our defense contracting process, defense procurement, is very inaccessible to first-generation or next-generation firms. We have five major contractors. There's been a huge consolidation. One of the things we talk about in the book is it is very, very difficult to break in to that defense procurement process. It's not designed for early stage companies. And yet early stage companies are where a lot of this most appealing innovation takes place. So there's a number of ecosystem problems we have. And what we propose in the book is meant to direct policymakers what to do. There needs to be significant deregulation, needs to be reform in defense procurement, there needs to be capital allocation driven by private sector forces into these areas that are most significant. And that begins to put us on a much even playing field. And unfortunately, we had a moment where we could have had some of that kind of thinking integrated into the CHIPS Act. And sadly, the legislation didn't really capture that. It was much more of a direct handout. But more than that, what's followed in terms of the regulations that have been imposed, or at least purportedly are being proposed, is exactly opposite of what we should do. It, it reeks of more traditional industrial policy, which I think is absolutely the wrong answer. And may, in fact, smear or handicap some of the right ways of doing it that you're talking about because of this experience that we've seen, which is really too bad. So let me turn to the data point here. I think you make a great case in the book and in previous article that you mentioned before as well, I think in Foreign Affairs that you wrote a couple of years ago about why data is so important, about how data is different than some of the traditional, let's say, goods of the past, because it can be used by multiple people for different reasons, right? It's not something that is consumed like the can of Coke that you're drinking or something like that, right, in that way. Why, in your mind, is data the critical element here? And then the corollary to that is, you know, we have, and you talk about in the book, concerns about how, even putting China aside for a second, how our own companies, our own government might collect and then use some of the data and amount of data that has just kind of exploded in a generation. So how do you recognize that this is so critically important, but still somehow put guardrails on it for the good of our own society, let alone dealing with China? Yeah, the purpose of the data section, it is a bit more conceptual than the other sections, but it was first and foremost meant to bring strategic focus to data. Because data is of enormous strategic importance to innovation, to the innovation agenda that I laid out. And there was an Economist article a couple years ago that said data is the new oil. 
And what we try to say in the chapter is, no, no, data is not the new oil. It's strategic, of strategic importance like oil, but it's non-rival, which is the, the point you make, which our friend Matt Slaughter from Dartmouth filled us in on. But non-rival means it can get used over and over again. And so if you think of innovation, the ability to draw on data, whether it's microbiology or whether it's artificial intelligence, the ability to draw on that data is a huge source and huge driver of innovation. And just think of COVID and the vaccines for COVID and the collaboration that took place in developing those. And one of the inhibitors early on was that the Chinese wouldn't share the data from the initial outbreak of COVID. And so that data is critical to driving the innovation agenda. And so we need to have a strategy for dealing with data. And unlike China, where you have top-down control, where you have access to all data, that in a narrow sense is a huge strategic advantage because China can use that data to help drive its innovation agenda, but it's also a huge constraint on individual liberty. And so that's the second part of the equation. We need a data strategy to embrace and take strategic value from data. We might even do that with the five eyes, our most important allies. We could have a data strategy that would go beyond our borders because we have common interests, just like we have common interests in intelligence or defense. But then what are the constraints on data and data privacy? Because, you know, going back to our earlier question, what's exceptional about America? It's the primacy of individual liberty, unconstrained by the role of government. That's why our country was founded. And so right now we're at an imbalance where we don't even know what happens to our data. God only knows what happens with the purchases we make through the internet or the searches we do. And what we're also seeing is that social media is playing a huge role in presenting a set of facts and information or a lack of facts and information that's very one-sided. So I think there's lots of evidence that social media companies, big tech, is a significant liberal bias. And there's significant evidence that there's lots of things that are presented to the American public in a way that's not a free exchange of ideas. COVID and the origins of COVID is a good example. So, you know, that was presented as, it seemed like an obvious common sense theory that COVID could have emanated from the lab, which given that it started in Wuhan, where there was a lab that would have had potential access, even if it was unintentional. And yet that idea, that theory was debunked over and over again in mainstream media and in social media. And here we are years later, and we have the intelligence agencies and the Department of Energy and others now embracing that theory with increasing probability that's what happened. Why is that? Why is the evolution of the information? It's because there was a very one-sided presentation of that early on. And so protecting individual data and protecting American discourse to ensure open and honest dialogue in a marketplace of ideas, I think we may need to have a more proactive regulatory framework for big tech and big data. And so one of the things that I've had to reconcile with myself as someone who's a traditional conservative, don't want the government evolve, less government, the better. One of the things I've had to reconcile is that I'm advocating for two areas where I think the government needs to play a limited but more proactive and disciplined role. And that's in the area of technology leadership and in the area of, of data and in particular data privacy. And I do that with great care. And I try to do that with a set of principles in both cases that say, let's be careful because this is a slippery slope. But the implications of not playing a more active role, I think are very detrimental to the interests of the United States. And I'll use this transition to our last kind of conversation. There's a third area too. I know you think the US government should play a more active role, which is in foreign policy. 
I know that that is something that is near and dear to you. And it also is what undergoods the book. I mean, like the book is called Superpower and Peril. If you were solely concerned about renewing America for America's sake, the superpower part is somewhat irrelevant, right? I mean, it's really just a domestic argument. So it's undergoods a larger thing. So a couple of questions on foreign policy. So one is throughout the book, China's everywhere in the book about why the Chinese are doing better, to your point, on kind of critical technologies than we are, why they're not the only ones, but on a variety of educational measures, they're doing better than we are, and why on other things that don't form those core three pillars, it seems like they're eating our lunch in a whole bunch of different ways. You spent time in China as a young man after leaving the army. You talk about it in the book, in fact. You visited China a number of times during your service in government, during the financial crisis in 2007, 2008. Is this a book about how do we outcompete China? Or is this a book in your mind, how do we renew America? Or is it both? Yeah, thanks. It's really both. When I list uh, the challenges that we face, I think China poses an existential challenge because its model, its ambition is in direct conflict with America's interest. But at the same time, I think America is challenged independent of China and needs to renew itself and find its way. And so they're very much interdependent. America's strength on the world stage is dependent on what we do at home. And so, you know, in some ways, the book is a guide for how America can go to the gym how America can make itself strong again with the policies I recommend. Those are necessary to bring back economic dynamism, to bring back great strides in productivity, to bring back the kind of leadership across industry that we need. It's also necessary to sort of renew the American spirit and create, you know, there's a line in the book that says, America is based on the premise of always getting better. It's based on the possibility that tomorrow is better than today. And the moment you have a stagnating economy where everybody's sort of stuck where they are, the less opportunity there is for people to actually pursue that American dream and have it be a realistic thing. So that's all true independent of what's happening on China. The stakes get much higher because China poses an existential threat. So it's a combination of the two things. And uh, it's just as your question suggests, America's strength at home has great influence on its ability to protect and project American interests abroad. And so it's not a book advocating a particular set of foreign policies. It's a book that says American leadership in the world is in America's interest, and America's leadership in the world is predicated on America's strength at home. Do you think, I'm circling back to the first thing you said in our conversation, for you, the contrast between 1979 and 1983 for you. And when I think about what was able to galvanize President Reagan, but also the country, to exactly what you're talking about, was a clear-eyed view of the Soviet communist threat in a way that hadn't existed for maybe a long time. And that it was that understanding or reflection back to us that incentivized, if not forced, I think our leaders to actually do some of the things that in that time that you were talking about today. So do you think that dealing with the China challenge successfully, however one might define that, is going to be what is the motivating force for it's doing one of, I think it's certainly one of them. It's one of the galvanizing things. And you know, you alluded to my time in China. So I, you know, as you said, I traveled through China right after leaving the army in 1992. And so what's that, 30 years ago? And I mean it was rural. It was unbelievable. I would go running in the morning in uh, had, I, the one thing that's missing from the book is you know the pictures in the middle and I was hoping I would see pictures of yeah, a young McCormick, you know on bicycles in Shanghai in 1994 <laughs> no bicycles but I was and it was remarkable how much it had changed when I went back again for the first time in 2005 as a government official 
And what became clear very early on, my remit was the uh, Undersecretary of Commerce for Export Administration, was the thirst for China for technology, for you know, stealing intellectual property, which was a huge problem for U.S. companies, but also for the export of technologies that would be advantageous to them building their own sectors, both military and civilian, whether it's aircraft or robotics or whatever. And almost immediately, there was a tension with restrictions that I was arguing to put in place and with the business commercial interest of some companies, but also even the pushback with the Chinese and a broader set of things. And then through my four years in the government, it became increasingly clear that market access, which was supposed to be reciprocal, kind of a quid pro quo, wasn't coming together. The Chinese weren't opening their markets despite the US opening its markets. So there were lots of early signs, 2005, 6, 7, 8. And I, you know, I certainly saw that and called it out and wrote op-eds about it and gave speeches about it. But what's happened in the last 20 years since then, it's you know, sort of our worst fears have become clear where China poses a true existential threat. It's an economic powerhouse. It's a military powerhouse. Now, I'm going to say something that may seem a contradiction. If I could bet on their system or ours, I'd still bet on ours. I think our system has the capacity for self-correction, the dynamism, all the things I talk about in the book, give me optimism, we will ultimately prevail but we have to do something to prevail. And that's what the book tries to describe. And so today, what I describe in the book is not only those policies we've discussed today, but a much more proactive engagement strategy with China. We need to strategically decouple. I describe what that means. We need to bring those critical industries home. We need to hold China accountable for COVID. We need to hold China accountable for human rights. We need to have alliances that are much more proactive in terms of countering China's aggressive impulses around the world. And finally, we need to have very restrictive policies around the kinds of investments that go to China. Today, as we speak, there are firms in the Silicon Valley that are invested in artificial intelligence companies that are owned by the government that support directly the PLA. That's exactly opposite of America's interests, and those things should be constrained. So we haven't done enough. I give President Trump credit. I think President Trump reset and redirected the relationship with China in the right direction. And now we need, in my opinion, a much more comprehensive model that confronts those realities and confronts China in a way that ultimately puts the United States in a position to prevail. I'm not in favor of provocative measures for provocative measures. I'm in favor of strength in pursuit of American interests. And that's ultimately the path to uh, America's superpower. And I think there are many, and I think this is true in the Biden administration as well, who think that the economic competition and the technology competition with China are the central axis in that way. What role in your mind do you think the military component here, you just talked about strength, right? And there's economic strength, which we need to have, obviously. But there's also military strength, and it's the backbone of a whole bunch of other things. So how do you assess the strength of our military today vis-a-vis China? Or, or we see it even how we're trying to support the Ukrainians against Russia. Well, I think there's three shortcomings I can report to. One is one step removed from the military, but it's the apathy and the gaps in our defense industrial base. One of the disappointments of the legislation's infrastructure and chips and so forth that was recently passed was the fact that our defense industrial base is lacking. It's not in a position to reinvigorate our military capabilities the way they need to be. And so that's a fundamental problem. It's a byproduct in part of the point I mentioned earlier about the consolidation of the defense industry and the lack of flexibility to accommodate new companies. So that's one piece of the puzzle. Second, I think we need much more of an innovation culture 
in our military. And this is something I wrote about 35 years ago when I finished my dissertation with the founder of- <laughs> You're going to cite your PhD thesis. Wow. <laughs> I, I am. I'm going to refer to that. But it's more obvious now and more profoundly challenging because the military culture has not had a history of embracing next generation capabilities to be able to fight the future war as opposed to the last war. I worry we're in, we're in one of those cycles. Just an example, whether one agrees or disagrees with the pretty significant reforms being proposed in the Marine Corps. There's lots of things to debate there. The degree and the viciousness of the counterattack, the moment those ideas were put forth, I think is emblematic of the challenges we have across our military, which is we're going to have to debate new ways of going to war, and the future is likely to be very different than the past. So that's a secondary problem. And then third, I do think we've got a cultural problem. I think the degree to which a progressive agenda has permeated our military, where the mission is warfighting, the mission is to be prepared to kill the enemy, and it's taken on other missions. A good example of this is that the United States Army released its climate strategy under the Biden administration before it released its warfighting strategy. That can't be the orientation. There's lots of examples of where that agenda, I think, is taking misplaced priority over the basics of creating a lethal military force. And listen, I think it's obvious, but if it's not obvious, it should be that the likelihood of America being tested, regardless of our desire to be tested, the likelihood of us being tested in the decade ahead is quite high and we need to be prepared for it. I think both our collapse in Afghanistan and the Russian invasion of Ukraine shortly thereafter are one such example of that test. And I think, sadly, you're right. There's more to come. Let me end maybe on this because it's a combination of a couple of the questions that came in. What in your mind are the biggest obstacles to actually being able to execute on this plan that you put forward? Are they, I'd like to go more granular than just political will, although the reality is you and I both know that good political leadership actually does get a lot done. But is it in Washington, D.C., is it the political level? Is it all the way down to communities in terms of how they embrace and reinvigorate some of these ideas? Is it in the business sector that they too could also lead the charge on some of these things? I mean, your points about wokeness, yes, there's the federal government aspect of it, but this is also yeah. happening in businesses. So where in your mind do you think are the biggest obstacles and how would you advise being able to either convince them, control them, you know, move through them, whatever it is? Well, there's two things I refer to in the book. You know, I don't pretend to be a political prognosticator. I just have had this recent experience of being on the campaign trail in Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvania is a pretty good microcosm, I think, of the country. And I came away from that believing that, you know, we talked about the anger, the frustration. 80% of Americans think the country's going in the wrong direction. And I believe they want proactive leadership. I believe they want a plan, ideas for moving forward. I don't believe they want to focus on the grievances of the past. We certainly have to look to the past to learn from our mistakes. We certainly have to, politics is a tough sport being in the arena. So we have to call out in a tough way and fight about our disagreements about the future of America. But in the end, it's about taking the country forward. And so I think whether it's these ideas or other ideas, ideas that look forward are critical because, you know, listen, if you're talking about those people that are angry, they're angry about problems that have to be fixed, whether it's inflation or fentanyl or globalization taking their jobs away. And so I think that solutions that actually fix those problems are going to go a long way. And that's the kind of place I think the Republican Party should be, and I hope it will be. And I think that's the path to winning because, you know, to put good ideas in place, you have to have good ideas, but you have to win elections. And so I think that combination is one piece of it. The second thing I try to, this is maybe a little more pie in the sky, but I believe it so strongly that I felt like I needed to talk about it in the book. 
I spent five years in the army and, you know, I don't remember ever, ever, I'm sure it happened. I don't remember ever having a political argument. I don't think I remember what, who was what. I don't know if who was Republicans and Democrats and there was, you know, a kid in my platoon from Alabama and another one from Newark and a Puerto Rican platoon sergeant and a kid from Boston that dropped out. And none of the politics mattered. What mattered that was we were all part of a team in pursuit of a common mission, a common purpose to protect one another, to support the country. And that was bigger than anything else. Our purpose as Americans, our patriotism to the country. And I think that essence has been lost. And we need to find ways to find common connectivity across political divides. And, you know, unfortunately, and I said this on the campaign trail, you know, I walked into diners in Pennsylvania or VFWs. I almost always found someone that had military experience that I could share a story with. You know, you'd see them, they had the Vietnam hat on or this or that. But in elite circles in New York or Washington, that's rarely the case because the experiences are largely drawn, those military are largely drawn from the, you know, the lowest two quartiles of our, uh, our economy. So finding ways to bond. It's a common education about American exceptionalism. It's maybe common service. It doesn't have to be military service. I don't think we're going to have mandatory national service. And I know there's some on the right that are skeptical of this idea, but we've got to find ways to create commonality. It's like two boats passing each other. The more lines you can throw across the water between the two boats, the more you're likely to find a common path. And that's one of the things I think we need to do. Military experience is one piece of that. There's got to be others. But ultimately, we as Republicans agree on much more than we disagree with. And ultimately, as Americans, we agree on much more than we disagree with in terms of America's role in the world. So there's got to be a path forward. Again, that may be why I'm the optimistic guy in the book, but I really believe it. I mean, your point about national service, I know is something you feel deeply about because you've written about it before over the years about if there are various ways to do it. When I hear of Republican politicians talking about national divorce, I say that's actually the opposite of the direction we should be heading and we should double down on some of the things that you're talking about. And I have no idea if the current president or the past one is going to read your book, but I actually do think that there's something in there for both of them in different ways, because I do think the book is going to kind of have that appeal. So maybe we'll just kind of end with this. Dave, who is the audience for you, for this book. You talk about throughout it, about so many people you meet in Pennsylvania on the campaign trail last year, obviously, but you're obviously, it's a policy book to a certain degree as well. Like who is the intended audience that you hope reads this and says, all right, I I gotta take my pen out and take some notes. Everybody, Gabe, we want everybody, everybody to read it. That's the cop (laughs) out. That's the cop out. That's the cop out. We want everybody to read it. So (laughs) it started as a policy book, obviously. So I hope that the reader's who are thinking about the future of the country will see it as not being kind of a political book where it's trying to be, you know, self-promotional, but more a book around here's ideas. You could agree or disagree, but, you know, hopefully it's thoughtful enough to get people to really engage in ideas. So that's anyone thinking about the future of the country, waking up in the morning saying, oh my God, I'm one of the 80% that thinks the country's going the wrong direction. I think there's something for that the group of people. I think it is also a leadership book. I try to talk about what the kind of leadership's required. And I try to make that a little bit autobiographical as somebody who's led in lots of different places, who's had his fair share of failures. And so putting those leadership experiences in context. And then listen, politics, you know, how many friends have you had that have told you, you know, I thought about running and don't run? Well, you know, I, I ran. And so here's a person that, you know, had a pretty good job and pretty good career. And I quit my job and jumped into the arena and it was a great privilege. Not a single regret would do it again a hundred times, but it's pretty disorienting. And so it's also for those who wonder what it's like, I try to give a little bit of a sense of what it's like to be a candidate on the stage to try to bring all those experiences to bear. 
Well, I hope without putting you on the spot, that arena is still uh, welcoming to you. I'm sure if you should so decide to figure out the next step there. But more importantly, what I actually hope is that, I don't know if it's in five years or 10 years, there's actually volume two, and you'll be able to actually look back and change the title from superpower and peril to superpower again, or something along those lines. So Dave, congratulations on the book, available on presale on Amazon and without being too pro big tech and all other booksellers everywhere that you can imagine. And I know is actually released next week. And so Dave, congratulations. Thank you again. And good luck as you get these ideas out there. Great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And thanks all for listening. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Hamiltonian podcast. If you enjoyed, please give us a five-star rating. New episodes are released every other Tuesday, available on every major podcasting platform. To make sure you get notified whenever a new episode is released, be sure to subscribe or visit our website, www.alexanderhamiltonsociety.org.